You'll turn your page from Judges and see the book of Ruth. We covered her earlier in the middle of Judges. The next history book is 1 Samuel. Actually, it should just be Samuel. 1st and 2nd Samuel were one book. They're one continuous story. But over the years, they were separated into two accounts. Probably because the scroll was too large. As you begin 1st Samuel, suddenly God's tent, the tabernacle, shows back up. We were told in Joshua 18, as the Israelites under Joshua conquered the west side of the promised land, the tent of meeting or tabernacle were set up at Shiloh in the tribe of Ephraim, dead center of this promised land. It's mentioned again in chapter 19 of Joshua as where they made the decision on who got what territory that remained. Then it disappears. It's not mentioned in Judges. That's pretty shocking. I should mention something about the size of the west side of the promised land. You kind of get the idea as you read it's Texas size. It's not. The area the 12 tribes settled in is approximately 160 miles from top to bottom and 75 miles from east to west. I live in Minnesota and that's about a sixth the size of our state. With the tabernacle in the dead middle, nobody was more than 80 miles from it. A majority of the people were within 40 miles of it or, or one or two days journey even on foot. So it's very surprising. God's tent or tabernacle at Shiloh is not even mentioned in the book of Judges. And then again, maybe it's not so surprising. For 330 years it sat there. The Old Testament is silent on how it was maintained or even used by the people of Israel. His mom and dad were Elkanah and Hannah. Hannah couldn't have a child and she desperately wanted one. She went up to Shiloh, to the tabernacle, and was in the tent of meeting, pouring her heart out to God, asking for a child. She begged God for a baby and said, If you would give me this child, I'll give him back. I'll dedicate him to you for service in this place. The top dog of the tent of meeting, the high priest, Eli, saw her in the tent of meeting, pouring her heart out to God. Her lips were moving, but she wasn't speaking out loud. Eli thought she was drunk and he scolds her. Apparently, coming crocked was not an unusual incident at the tabernacle. Hannah goes home, becomes pregnant, and delivers a baby. She calls him Samuel, asked of God. God had fulfilled his part of the deal, so Hannah fulfills hers. After the child is weaned, remember that was three to four years old in Old Testament times, Hannah takes little Samuel up to Shiloh, to the tabernacle, and hands him over to Eli. If you've ever seen child dedications in churches, that child dedication probably came out of this Old Testament incident. We're told in the text that each year, Hannah would make a cloak for little Samuel, each year a little bigger. We're then introduced to some of Samuel's new family at the tabernacle, to Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Hophni and Phinehas are a piece of work. God calls them worthless men. When an all-knowing and loving God calls you a worthless man, you've got a problem. First Samuel explains what that problem was. They completely ignored God's rules for sacrifice. Liking their meat grilled, not boiled, and fatty, not lean, they took whatever they wanted, even against Eli's rebuke. The text also tells us they were real playboys with the ladies who visited the tabernacle. One night, Samuel, perhaps now a young teen, is awakened when his name's called in the middle of the night. 
He runs to Eli and asks, Why did you call? Eli said, I didn't call. Go back to bed. This happens three times. On the third time, Eli wonders, Hmm, maybe God's calling his name, and instructs Samuel how to respond. When his name is called again, Samuel responds, and God gives him a message for Eli and his sons. The message is this, Warnings are over. Your sons are blaspheming. No sacrifice or offerings will ever forgive their sin. Ouch. Soon the Philistines attack Israel and the battle's going very badly. Someone gets the bright idea. Go get the ark. You know, God's box, our rabbit foot, our good luck charm. Hophni and Phinehas bring the ark to the battlefront. The Philistines go crazy and fight for their lives. They kill many in Israel and take the ark. A messenger comes back to Shiloh with the news. He tells Eli sitting at the gate, Hophni and Phinehas are dead, and the ark has been taken. When Eli hears that the ark has been taken, he falls over backwards, breaks his neck, and dies. The text tells us he was a very fat man. It makes you wonder, how did he get fat? Did he like his sacrifice meat fatty too? When Phinehas' wife heard that her husband was dead, she went into labor and gave birth to a son. She named that son Ichabod. The glory has departed. The ark was gone. The ark that the cloud hovered over, indicating God's presence and blessing on Israel, was gone. The Philistines put the ark in the temple of their god Dagon. The next morning they found Dagon tipped over on his face in front of the ark. They set him back up. And the morning after, they found him on his face again, this time with his face and his hands broke off. Pretty tough when your God falls on his face twice in a row and gets broken to pieces. Then God breaks out on the Philistine people a plague. We'll find it probably had something to do with an infestation of rats and an outbreak of boils on the Philistines. They move the ark from Philistine city to Philistine city. It's like radioactive waste. Finally, they come up with a plan. We'll put it on a cart, hook it up to a cow that's just had a baby, and see if that cow will pull it back to Israel. We want to know if it's coincidence, or if this is a real God who brought these plagues on us. I mean, talk about stacking the deck. Expecting a cow to walk away from her baby calf? But that's exactly what she does. Not only does she walk away from her baby calf, but she happily moves the whole way along. The Philistines send an offering with the ark. Replicas of rats and boils made out of gold. A superstitious yet respectful nod to the God of Israel. In many ways, the Philistines are showing more honor to God than God's people are. Speaking of which, when it gets into Israelite territory, guess what some of God's people do? They peek into the ark. We're only told 70 died. Not how, though scenes from Raiders of the Lost Ark come to mind. At this point, Samuel must have been fully grown. With Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas dead, he steps up. He summons the people of Israel to Mizpah for confession and renewal. While they're there, the Philistines gird up an attack. God, this time, steps in for Israel. Claps of thunder from heaven put the Philistines into a dead panic. It's pretty obvious. God has returned to Israel's side. Samuel dedicates a stone and names it Ebenezer our God of help. Following this delivery by God, there's a time of peace. The Philistines are pushed back, big time. We're told Samuel 
rode a circuit to three cities around Israel and led the people and was their prophet or seer, giving them guidance from God. Maybe Samuel spent too much time on the road, or maybe not. We're told that Joel and Abijah, Samuel's two sons, were also scallywags. Samuel tried to make them his heir apparents, appointing them as judges, but the people wouldn't have it. Joel and Abijah were known to be greedy and to twist justice. Not a good thing for a judge. Samuel began to hear murmurings. We want a king like the other nations. Give us a king. Then those murmurings became shouts from the crowd. We want a king like the nations around us. Samuel was very wounded and asked God about it. God said, Get over yourself, Samuel. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. You're my prophet. Warn them what comes in the package of getting a king. And that's what Samuel does. You'll be sorry. Power corrupts. He'll take the best of everything you have. It had been a period of peace since God had pushed back the Philistines under the wise leadership of the judge and prophet Samuel. Would the people wake up and see that and continue that? A theocracy under God? Or would they demand a king, a monarchy, so they could be like the other nations around them? I'm betting you can guess which way they'll go. And we'll meet the king they demand, Israel's first king, in our next word picture.